This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and I've entitled the message, A State of Grace. And in this passage, we have a tremendous illustration of the fact that apart from grace, there is no solution for many of the issues and problems that we face in our society. But with grace, great change can come about. But the single most important need that any person has and the single most important need that any nation or culture has is spiritual in nature. We have to be right spiritually or we will not be right any other way in our life. Second Chronicles 33 opens this way. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now, the thing that makes these two sentences so tragic is that Manasseh was the son of good King Hezekiah and was old enough at the time he ascended to the monarchy to know the incredible miracles that had been performed by God, by the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, under his father. His father had been, by and large, a very faithful king to God. He had some points of failure, but by and large, a very faithful, believing king. And as a result, one of the great miracles that he witnessed, one of the outstanding events of history, was the defeat of the army of Sennacherib. They just died. They had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and, and during the night, they just died. And Sennacherib went limping back to Nineveh, and there he was assassinated. But later... We're going to see the army of that very nation come back and wreak judgment on Manasseh. And they're going to do it because of the, what was in that second verse. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now, what that verse is referring to is this. When the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after they had been released from their slavery in Egypt by the power of God, had been brought back to the land of Canaan. They had been brought back because God had promised it to them as a covenant promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants, after a period of slavery, would come back and would take the land away from the Canaanites. The reason God did that was because of the sin of the Canaanites. And God was patient with the Canaanites for several hundred years, but then there came a point at which it was obvious they were not going to respond to the natural revelation that God had given them, and they were not going to repent of their moral degradation and their spiritual misconceptions of God. And so the Jewish people conquered them and displaced them. They didn't do it perfectly, but enough so that they became the dominant nation in the region. And then we have the period of the judges, and then we have the period of the kings, which lasted roughly half a millennium. And uh, in the northern kingdom, you had a checkered history when the kingdom divided after the death of Solomon. You had a history of no monarchs who were faithful to the Lord. And so the ten northern tribes' descent into moral chaos and finally conquest came 120 years quicker than that of Judah. And Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, had been a king over the southern kingdom called Judah and had done a very admirable job. Manasseh had been witness to some of that and was old enough to know better when he became the king, but he decided to lead a spiritual rebellion against God and thus to tempt God to 
judge the nation as God promised that he would if they weren't faithful to him. And in verses that follow, he goes into a list of all the things that he did, various kinds of idolatry, and also placing idolatrous images in the very temple area itself, which was a horrific blasphemy. And one of the most awful things that he did was he practiced child sacrifice. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. That was the worship of Moloch, and it was a grisly practice, and the valley of Ben-Hinnon is just down the hill from the Temple Mount, so you could hear the screams of those children who were being burned alive and sacrificed to Moloch. And he even descended into that, a horrific practice, burning his own sons in this terrible abomination. So every kind of perversion, every kind of crime, every kind of sin was indulged in by this king, and he encouraged the people to become worse than the Canaanites. And God then reminded him through the prophets that there's a consequence for that kind of spiritual rebellion. No culture can survive that. No culture can go through that. And I would remind myself, and I would remind all of us, that our country is awash in the very kinds of sins, we call them by different names today, that are listed in this list. The very kinds of, for lack of a better term, wickedness that was going on here. And if we think we are going to not escape the natural sociological consequences of that, the moral consequences of that, we are insane. Nobody escapes that. But this is a message about grace, and we're going to talk about it in just a minute. And it said, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Not only did they do what the Canaanites did, they upped it. They were even worse. They figured out new ways to be nasty. Well, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. And God is always speaking out to us. He speaks out to us in the form of his written word most powerfully. But he also speaks to us through godly people. He speaks to us through the lessons of history. He speaks to us. And he spoke to Manasseh and he spoke to the people and they didn't listen. They were enjoying their rebellion. They were having a big evil time and they enjoyed it. So when we don't listen to that lesson, God has another way of getting our attention. Therefore, now whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's it therefore? Well, the therefore means because all this other stuff had happened, therefore the Lord, now that word Lord, which is the same word that's being used throughout the whole passage, is in all capitals. It means I am Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God, the special name of God and his relationship with the Jewish people, with the covenant people, the I am. Therefore, the Lord, notice what it says, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. God stirred Assyria up to come back, and this time he didn't stop them. They besieged Jerusalem, and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. And you're saying, well, why does that mean they captured Manasseh with hooks? Well, I'll tell you what that means. It means they took what would be the equivalent of a giant fish hook, and just behind his lower front teeth, they drove it through the bottom of his mouth, and the curved end came around his chin. They literally hooked him 
like a fish, attached it to a chain, chained him up, and frog-walked him all the way back to Babylon, 350 miles. Now, the real capital was in Nineveh. They didn't even take him to the capital. They took him to a little provincial backwater at the time called Babylon. Babylon will later become a great city and a great civilization and topple Assyria itself. But nevertheless, prophetically, he is carried away to Babylon, where later his descendants will be carried away in not more than 120 years. Verse 12, when he was in distress, this is when Manasseh is in distress, he comes to himself. And sometimes when I'm in distress, I have to, first, the person I have to look at is, I don't have to look up and say to God, why me? Then I have to take a look at myself and say, hey, dude, what, do you, what have you been doing? When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, that is to God, he, that is God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Isn't that an amazing statement? He encountered grace, and when we encounter grace, we discover something, that the Lord is God, that he's in control, that Manasseh thought he could thumb his nose at God, thought he could do whatever he wanted to do, and found out that he couldn't. He also discovered that the fates of nations are determined by this very God and that nation's corporate outlook and deference to the God who is really there, whether you're a Canaanite, whether you're an Assyrian, or especially whether or not you're of the people of God. God holds us accountable for the brain that he gave us and the power that we have to make choices. And when Manasseh began to confess his sin and to bow himself before God and to pray, God answered his prayer. He moved into a state of grace. And then when that happened, God brought him back to Jerusalem, took the hook out of his jaws, took the chains off, brought him back to Jerusalem. The Assyrians reinstalled him in office. And after this, he realized, hey, the Lord is God. I don't know when people wake up and discover that God's real, but for those who enter a state of grace, there comes a point at which our spiritual eyes are open and we say, yeah, God's real. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ is real. Jesus is real. Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really did die for my sins. He really did rise from the dead. Yeah, this is real. God is there. Now, after this, Manasseh had an incredibly productive life. Before this, his life had been nothing but destruction. But now that he's in a state of grace, now that he is in a covenant relationship with God by faith, great things begin to happen. Describes in verses 14 and 15 how he rebuilt the city, how he refortified his outposts, and then how he began to remove the idols that he had set up all over the place. In verse 16, he said, he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. So the people still didn't come to the central sanctuary for worship as they were supposed to, but they weren't worshiping false gods. They were worshiping the true God, but they weren't doing it in the commanded way. But he did bring about a at least surface revival among his people. 
Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. Now this is the writer's way of doing what we call footnotes. He is explaining to us where the material came from, the historical material came from, that he is using. The data he is using is actual historical fact and his interpretations guided by the Holy Spirit are also true applications of what God is trying to teach us through that historical material. And in that material, his prayers, how God forgave him, and all of the things that he did to get things right are recorded in detail. Unfortunately, we don't have those records, but we've got this one, which God saw to it that we had. Now, when Manasseh died, he was succeeded by a son by the name of Ammon. Ammon was not a good king either. He was wicked, and he lasted two years, and then he was killed. He was then followed, Ammon was followed by King Josiah. Josiah came to the throne. He was just eight years old, but he had good advisors that governed the country for him until he was old enough as a teenager to begin ruling himself. But from the very beginning, he's had a heart and a mind toward God. He lived in a state of grace, a state of faith, a state of belief. And he led the nation on one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel. In fact, in Second Kings chapter 23, verses 25 to 27, we read these words about Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. There wasn't another king like Josiah. Josiah had a great reign into his mid-30s when he was killed in a, in a military campaign. But during his lifetime, a revival came about. And because of that revival, the spiritual survival of the Jewish people happened. It was during that revival that men like Daniel and his three friends and men like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were born and grew up knowing the grace of God and knowing God. And therefore, there was a faithful remnant that when the hammer finally fell and the judgment of God fell with Babylon, that those who were carried off into exile, many of them were believers. And so God saved his country spiritually before he then later in history saved them nationally. There's yet to be a fuller fulfillment of all that. But that's how it works. He starts by transforming us spiritually, and then the other part comes as a result of that. Verse 26, though, has a sober warning about the consequences of our choices. However, even though Josiah had been that good king, the grandson of Manasseh, even though Josiah had emulated the best of Hezekiah, the best of Manasseh. However, the Lord, that is God, did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Though God had forgiven Manasseh of his sins, and God forgives all of our sins on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not on the basis of our performance, Nevertheless, Manasseh had set into motion such a deep-seated and deep-rooted rebellion that they had crossed a line that had been drawn in the sand by the Mosaic Code, which God established with Israel hundreds of years before. There is a point of no return. And because of it, the Lord said, quote, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, My name shall be there. End of quote. So that's exactly what happened. 
the prophets give us many, many examples and reasons as to why those things happened the way they did. But the historical narratives also give us the broad sweeping outlines of how God worked in the histories of that country. And after that country split, they had their civil war and they didn't stay together. They had their civil war and split apart. And all of that, too, was part of the design of God to discipline the house of David because of David's sin and later Solomon's sin. So our sins will find us out. Our sins will find us out corporately. And I think it was James Madison who said that individuals are judged in eternity, but nations are judged in the here and now. And so as we are engaged in the business of creating a culture, creating a society, and as you in the legislature are about the task of crafting the laws under which we live, we need to be cognizant of the fact that God needs to have his input into that process. We need to be thinking his thoughts after him. We need to be morally following that which he has said is right and that which he will bless. And we need to be absolutely convinced of the fact that that which has walked away from that which he has given us, the moral codes of the scripture, will not go unpunished. It will not go without its consequences. It just won't. And we will have nobody to blame but ourselves when it comes down. And we see that devastation all around us in one tragic thing after another, whether it's the drug epidemic or the inability it seems like we have to put a lid on abortion, whatever the case may be. We still have difficulty as a country truly, truly understanding that the great blessings we've received come as a result of a large number of people who have really turned to God and ask for forgiveness of their sins and found a state of grace. And when Christ enters a life and the Spirit of God enters a person, his life changes. And when you look at Manasseh, you can see a living testimonial of just exactly what that looks like. His life is 180 degrees different from when he was carried off to Babylon and when he came back. There was no possible reason under the sun why Assyria would let him come back. But it was God's demonstration, just like it would later be in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. It was God's demonstration that above all other things, he is in control of history. And it is our response to him that will determine how things come out for us here on earth. May God richly bless you. And I pray that you will indeed find yourself in a state of grace.